the Paradiso, Canto 14, verse 85, to Canto 18, verse 70. In other words, the heaven of Mars. The first heading I have is the heaven of the cross. At the heart of Dante's Paradiso, we do not find the heaven of the sun, with its emphasis on Dominican and Franciscan saints, but the red heaven of Mars, soaked, figuratively speaking, with the blood of the martyrs. Here the Ptolemaic order of the planets suited the poet's intention admirably. The placing of Mars higher than the sun, midway through the last midway through his last great cantica enabled Dante to stand as it were before his Lord and the life-giving cross. You remember as he ascended from the sun to Mars he had this vision of uh, the cross and of Christ. Hence the Christians witness to the fact that he is baptized into and called to enter in life into the mystery of Calvary. Martyrdom, whether it be through violence or a life-bearing witness to Christ due to the putting on of the yoke cross of the Christian life, is placed by Dante as the central core meditation to his Paradiso. We think of Mark 8, 36 to 38 for whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it for what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and shall lose his own soul Dante's attempt to gain the whole world through a life in politics had been a dismal failure. As we know, trumped-up charges of corruption had sent him into exile where he had to learn to carry his own cross with that of his saviour. He came to know, and I quote from Paradiso 17, lines 58 to 65, how salt is the taste of another's bread how hard the path to descend and mount by another's stairs. And that which shall weigh on your shoulders, that's his own, will weigh on your shoulders down, will be the evil and senseless company with which you shall fall into this vale, which shall then become all ungrateful, all mad and malevolent against you. It is not difficult to calculate <coughs> that these hard words spoken by Cacciaguida, who we will meet today, his ancestor Cacciaguida, come virtually midway of the last great cantica, therefore at the core of the Paradiso, the taking up of his own cross. We know, because we have travelled with the poet, that there came a time when his bitterness and anger had to be tempered. Lost in the dark wood of his passions, he came through God's mercy to realise that he had to take up his own cross and follow the examples left by countless before him. Self-pity was getting him nowhere. These central cantos make it quite clear that through this acceptance of the cross, Dante's life began to be transformed. In Christ he had the divine model of rejection and humiliation. He writes, Here my memory outstrips my wit, for the cross so flashed forth Christ that I can find no fit comparison. 
that he that takes up his cross and follows Christ shall yet forgive me for what I leave untold when he sees Christ flash in that dawn. That's Paradiso 14 lines 103 and 108 to 108. Note the threefold repetition of the word Cristo, Cristo, Cristo when you look at the Italian text. Now turn to those verses. Does not this vision of the life-giving cross come in Canto 14? Because if the 14 stations of the cross, Franciscan devotion, which is still with us in Western devotion, this cannot be unintentional. Dante was thinking deeply of the mystery of the stations of the cross. He was a Franciscan tertiary. He knew this teaching. Furthermore, the threefold mentioning of the word Cristo in the above quotation form, falls as concluding words to the lines 104, 106 and 108. These numbers by Geomatria, simply, that is simply adding up the digits like 1 plus 0 plus 4 equals 5, give us 5, 7, 9. Numbers associated respectively with the cross and humanity, 5. The sacrament, 7. Divine Love and the Celestial Hierarchies, 9. Dante is saying in a typical medieval way that the cross is at the heart of our humanity, that the sacraments exist because of its victory, and that the cross is at the heart of the mystery of love. Note also that the threefold Christo, Christo, Christo rhyme will fall again exactly on the same numbered verses in Canto 19, forming a sort of frame around these all-important cantos. And then again, 19, 1 plus 9 equals 10, the commandments, the Torah, the way, I am the way, the life and the truth. But let us return to more, the more pressing theme of the cross, the martyrs and Dante. The next heading is the exaltation of the cross and the transfiguration. As the poet rises with Beatrice from the heaven of the sun to that of Mars, he sees a burning ball, radier to me than his custom is then stretched across the blood-red sky he sees the venerable sign il venerabile segno line 101 of pure light filled with ruby splendors and they form themselves above him into the pattern of the cross and it is at that moment the poet receives his vision of Christ we have been prepared for this in line 94 when Dante calls out to our Lord with the name Elios, a curious amalgam of Elios, the Greek for the sun, S-U-N. Here, Christ surely is the true son of our, our hearts and our Lord's cry from the cross Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now it seems to me quite possible that the mosaic cross at the centre of the apse of Santa Polinare in Classe, just outside Ravenna, where the poet was to spend his last years, 
was instrumental to this powerful imagery. Even more important, though, is the fact that two great feasts of the church focused in the poet's mind. The exaltation of the precious and life-giving cross, which is on the 14th of September, and incidentally, tradition has it that Dante died on the 14th of September, 1321. And if this is so, he died on the feast day, which he loved so much. So the exaltation, the precious and life-giving cross, and the celebration of the Lord's transfiguration on Mount Tabor, the 6th of August. This fundamental feast of the Church's calendar was not officially recognized in the West until 1475. Here Dante seems to be intuitively at one with the Orthodox tradition rather than that of the West of his time. As suggested elsewhere, maybe Byzantine influences had lingered on in Ravenna and the eastern coast of the peninsula. Dante's last years were a time when his thought and devotion lay hold of the deep insight that we find in this last great cantica. One cannot help but suspect that he had a wise teacher, a staretz, helping and guiding him. Dante's imagery finds extraordinary resonance in the Orthodox festival Menion, that's the service book for the great feasts of the year. Turn, for example, to the service of great Vespers for the exaltation of the cross. We read, O cross sign radiant with light among the stars. Again at Matins, O marvellous wonder, the length and breadth of the cross is equal to the heavens, for by, by divine grace it sanctifies the whole world. And again, the four ends of the earth, O Christ, our God, are sanctified today by the exaltation of thy cross with its four arms. Such imagery surely the substance of Dante's own imagery. And note that here we are far from the literalistic imaginings of the Franciscan tradition common to Dante's day. Here in these central cantos we are called upon to contemplate the cosmic significance of the cross. And coming from above as if from the cross itself, the poet hears music. I quote, um, that's um, Canto 14 at lines 122 to 126. Obscure to the sense, obscure to sense, which yet entranced me with its melody. For some high song of praise, I knew it, since arise and conquer caught my ear, although I heard it not with full intelligence. Dante perceives that the instrument of this divine music is indeed the cross, which he likens to a lyre or viol, viol with strings of various pitch twangling attuned in dulcet harmony. See Canto 14, 118 to 119. The Italian original is even more significant, for we have the word corde, strings, corde, which invokes cor, cuore, the heart. Such music is not to be heard in the head, Dante is implying, but in the heart. The cross, the lyre of the Christian soul, recalls Apollo and his lyre, 
whom Marcius the satire was foolish enough to challenge with his merry pipes of Pan. One played Apollonian cosmic harmonies, the other mere earth music. Indeed, elsewhere, in the first canto of the Paradiso, we noted that Dante prayed, Enter into my breast and breathe there as when you drew Marcius from the sheath of his limbs. Canto 1, lines 67 to 72. To hear the music of the cross implies martyrdom, that is, witness. You don't hide, you know, the Lord says you don't hide a lamp under a, a pot. You put it on a table so its light can be, can light a room and so on. To hear the music of the cross implies witness. The genuine overcoming of the self, it requires the taking up of one's own cross and making the effort to follow the example of the Saviour. Here, for the attent attentive reader, the indirect meaning of Apollo is of vital importance. For the true Helios, light of our souls, is no longer the classical God, but the living Christ. The next heading is the divine rigour. Divine love is endless, and yet in this world it is found supremely in the vulnerability of our mortality. The outrages against the innocent, in our weaknesses and sufferings, even in our wounds and our decay. If God so loved the world that he emptied himself to become man, then he had to embrace all those aspects of life which frighten us and from which we cannot escape. Just as the glory, the Shekinah, limits itself to the creation, so is the presence of Shekinah in exile with us. Time, in the sense of Kronos, devours its own children, the good and the bad alike. Rigour and restraint are hard attributes to understand. Discipline and the accepting of limits are often as a consequence of the divine mercy. Just as there are limits that are set in artistic expression, so there has to be a mould for God's love to be expressed and known. To bear witness to our faith means that we have gladly accepted limits in order that grace may flow, just as the poet accepts the form of a sonnet in order that his expression may be channeled. The Beatitudes illustrate the relationship between mercy and rigour at this deep level. For the foolishness of God overturns all our preconceived ideas. Curiously, it is through this restraint that joy is known. Joy is not known in dissipation, but through restraint. Paradox paradoxically, evil loves to offer all its opposites to mercy at this point. And this is amply illustrated in the Passion Story. And as C.S. Lewis illustrates in his Tales for Children, it is precisely here that the deep knowledge of the wisdom that was before the world's where is hidden. Thus it is that through martyrdom the witness to 
the limits beyond which a Christian may not go, that is the denying of his Lord and Saviour, that the ever-present reality of Christ's passion is known. It is known through the fragility of our mortality and all thereby hangs on it. The martyrs, through their witness, won us the freedom we so relish. We consider that our nation would never slip towards the extremes of the right or the left. We indulge in our so-called freedom and break every constraint. Ethics now seem worthless in a world where mammon rules, where the selfhood may indulge in any whim of its imagination, be it through the caprices of the media or, indeed, the signs of the times would appear to read, however, that God is not mocked. The law, the way, can only be broken and strained, strayed from, but to hasten the judgment that man himself brings upon his fellow humans. The mark witness to freedom the martyr's witness to freedom was to the yoke of the cross mammon's freedom reveals the extent to which Lucifer and his spirits beguile the mind enabling the imagination to turn vanities into idols giving credence that they speak to us the motor car speaks more to our world, far more than the quiet voice of God. Next, Dante's understanding of the god Mars. Canto 14 shows us Dante drawing together many threads found in his tale. Virgil, his mentor, represented the good of his intellect as he repaired his ways to return to Beatrice, to wisdom. The Commedia illustrates Dante's grasp of the ancient world, its history, myths and gods. His understanding is not that of the syncretism as to be found in the Renaissance philosophers like Marsilio Ficino or Pico della Mirandola, but of using the classical world as examples of fundamental moments in history and its myths as illustrative of conditions of the soul. In the heaven of Mars, the poet lays bare the limitations of the classical world, a fact which, within a hundred years, the Renaissance will begin to ignore. Mars, the god of war and the illicit lover of Venus, are images looking down at us from numerous canvases and frescoed walls of the Renaissance. Dante does not sentimentalize or philosophize, philosophize on these images, as did Botticelli or Mantegna or Titian, or numerous other artists. Dante is a realist, a Christian conscience, may only embrace at this level the tragedy of history, a Theban Mars, the harbinger of death and devastation, together with a Saturn who devours his offspring through a corruptive and degenerative process. Memories of two world wars and the present horrors writing their way into the history books stretch before us. And Dante's Italy was no better with its petty wars, tortures, black hole prisons, murders and poisonings. 
the ancients spoke of harmonia es concordia discourse. Harmony is the concord of discordant elements. Dante, through the knowledge, his knowledge of St. Augustine, insisted rather on harmonia es discourse concordia, because for the, the Christian grace upon grace, all thing, all discord is transformed into concord, adversity into advantage, darkness into light. And this helps the Christian to penetrate the enigmatic symbol of his faith. At best, the Martian energies for Dante could be turned into, say, a just war. As for the rest, Mars brought about the passions of oppression, discord, darkness, social disorder, corruption, malice, division of friends and families, plagues, sufferings and death. It is said that Mars temple of old was guarded by wild passions, blind sinfulness, burning wrath, pallid fear, armed discord and cruel treachery. The image before us is the epitome of hell's is the Inferno's dis and its city, through which the poet and his mentor had to journey down towards the shaggy ice-grimed flanks of fallen Lucifer himself. It is not enough to think of Cain and Abel. A city, sorry, it is enough to think of Cain and Abel. A city born of fratricide ends in fratricide. See, for example, Genesis 4, verses 16 to 24. It was a city of extremes. Enoch walked with God and was taken to heaven, Genesis 5, 24. And fallen angels mated with the daughters of men, and giants roamed the earth. Um, Genesis 6 to 4. That relates to the tradition of Enoch um, that we were talking about after the lecture last week. And remind me that after, when I finished talking that I brought up to, to show you this books on this tradition of Enoch the prophet. This is imagery that Dante took very seriously. The Martian energies could be harnessed by knightly values and become the driving force of empire, the building of cities, national cohesion, heroic vigour, even moral rectitude and restraint. But history relates rather a tale of decay through lust, pride, greed, malice and avarice. It is enough to consider the world and its events known to Dante to grasp his insight. We who have lived through the last war know how so-called knightly values may easily become the black spectres of Nazism. The free play of Mars' passions for the minds of a few minds possessed by Lucifer beguiled a nation causing holocaust and havoc to our civilization. Caught in the rise and fall of empires, history reveals the ceaseless circulating of fortune's wheel. I refer you there to the Inferno and Canto 7, lines 79 to 93. Fortune's wheel brings prosperity and disaster, an image for Dante which carries out the divine purpose. For nothing is static, all things are subject to change, 
The river beneath the bridge flows on and on, changing every instant. The classical world for Dante, without the redemption, could only lead to a fatal inviscamento. See Paradise, Paradiso 17, verse 32. That is a sense of parallel, parallel, par, par, I can't get the word out, par, paralyzed, paralysis, through the endless repetition of past errors. A stoic virtu appeared as the only guard to a person the person could have against the pincer-like grasp of fate, and such would yet again become the teaching of the Renaissance. For example, the thought that we find in the Uomo Universale, the architect Leon Battista Alberti. Even Virgil, his mentor, mentor could only offer a temporal pastoral escape from Mars's inviscamento. But even in Virgil's pastoral escape, the soul is still bound to the prison of the body and the realm of matter. Such a state of affairs for Dante was ultimately an insomnium, a nightmare. Perhaps the dreamlike state of limbo, Virgil's abode, reflects the classical pastoral idyll seen through the eyes of eternity. And then another footnote, note how the pastoral idyll returns in the Renaissance with Sanazzaro's Arcadia and the episode of Erminia amongst the shepherds in Tasso's great masterpiece, A Jerusalemme Liberata. Dante had studied his Homer and Virgil, his Aristotle too, and what was available to him of Plato's dialogues. He admired their world had learnt much from it, for the pilgrim soul learns from the good wheresoever it finds it. Virgil's exam example is still with him as he settled to write these central cantos. In the sixth book of the Aeneid, Aeneas meets the shade of Anchis, his father. And here Dante meets the soul of his great-great-grandfather, Caccia Guida, who died fight, fighting in the Second Crusade. But there, all the similarities end. For all of Virgil and his predictions had been fulfilled by the Incarnation. The sadness of Hades had been dispersed once and for all by the joy of the martyrs. The next heading is the cross. So it is that the reader is told that all the learning which the poet held onto for so long, he now discovers fulfilled and transformed through the light of the cross. Dante's teaching is profound, for by taking up our cross, we find all things transformed. Life can never be the same again. There is no going back. For we have entered on the endless journey from glory to glory to the living God. And our transfiguration begins when we take up of our own free will, which was the core, you remember, the core cantos of Purgatorio, the cross that is laying upon us, which is the core cantos of the Paradiso. Thus, for Dante, the cross and the transfiguration are inextricably bound together. That remember that after the transfiguration, our Lord set out for Jerusalem and to embrace his martyrdom, his, his passion. 
Note, the cross is the light that is victorious over the malefic red heaven of Mars. Note that the word Marte echoes morte, death, and morte echoes martire, martyrdom. The cross is the triumph over death. It is tra i poli del mondo, between the poles of the world, between the celestial poles. It is the venerabile segno, the venerable sign. It is questa gioia preziosa, this precious joy. It is studded with the sparkling souls of the martyrs. It is the symbol of hope and peace. E veni dal martirio a questa pace. And I came from martyrdom to this peace. The words of his great-great-grandfather. It is also the symbol of the eschatological Jerusalem. It is the universal lyre, viol, harp, the cosmic harmonies which penetrate the heart. It hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of his sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. St. Paul to the Colossians, the first epistle, uh, first Charlie, the first chapter, uh, verses 15 to 20. The cross thus binds the earth to the empyrean, history to eternity, the manifold to the one, man to the logos. And Dante has touched the many profusions, the seeds of the imagery of the cross as ladder, anchor, lamp, throne, medicine, military ensign, gnosis, salvation, cosmological pattern, signature of Christ, martyr's crown, the book of life, door to paradise, gateway to visions, etc., etc. The next heading is Arise and Conquer. You remember that Arise and Conquer were the words that caught Dante's ear as he heard the heavenly music emanating from the lyre of the cross embracing the heavens and the earth. Though he heard music, he says he could not hear it with his full intelligence. Many levels of understanding confront the pilgrim soul here, from St. Helena's discovery of the true cross to those hymns sung during Passion Tide and which still haunt the memory. The royal banners forwards go, the cross shines forth in mystic glow. O, o tree of beauty, tree of light, O tree with royal purple dight, Elect on whose triumphant breast those holy limbs should find their rest. Here it is essential to grasp that the height and depth of the cross stretches throughout the Commedia's cosmological diagram from top to bottom. From Mount Calvary it descends down into Hades to cut through Lucifer. He is, as it were, staked right through through his icy heart, then up through the centre of Mount Purgatory, and then from the garden of earth innocence it rises like a heavenly tree to the Father. 
its branches, housing all the heavenly hosts. Having established this symbolism in our mind, Dante then paradoxically says that this heavenly tree has its roots in the divine mystery itself. And such is the imagery of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Its branches reach down to us with its fruits. And it is essential to hold both images in our mind, for both indicate profound spiritual insight. This powerful imagery recalls a quotation from the apocryphal Acts of St. Andrew. This book is a sort of early rom romance and was known to Gregory of Tours and St. John Chrysostom and others, including, quite possibly, Dante himself. The relevant passage comes when St. Andrew beholds the cross upon which he is about to suffer martyrdom. He speaks to the cross before him as if it was a living thing. I know thy mystery, says St. Andrew, for which thou art set up. For thou art planted in the world to establish things that are unstable. One part of thou stretches to the heaven, so that thou mayest point out the heavenly logos, the head of all things. Another part of thou art stretched out to the right and the left, that thou mayest put to flight the envious and adverse power of the evil one and gather what is scattered abroad into unity. And another part of thou is planted in the earth and rooted in the depths, that thou mayest bring what is on earth and under the earth into contact with that which is in heaven. O cross, tool of salvation the Most High, O cross, trophy of the victorious Christ over his enemies, O cross, planted on earth, and bearing thy fruit in heaven. O name of the cross, filled with all things, well done, O cross, that thou hast bound the circumference of the world. The next heading is the cross and the transfiguration. For Dante, the light emanating from the cross is a profound mystery. It is the light of the transfiguration and is at the core of the Commedia's meaning and significance. When Dante reflected on his knowing of Beatrice during her earthly life, he understood his brief moments when he saw her, saw her as the cause of the deep change which came upon him and which he termed his trasfigurazione, his transfiguration. See the Vita Nuova, sections 14 and 15. Love changed him once and for all. No matter how far he let later strayed from his memories of Beatrice, his life had been haunted by her memory, together with the experience of change it had brought upon him once he turned and faced her reality. He coined the word transhumanization, transhumanar. The more he beheld Beatrice, the more he changed through the mystery of light all about her and the light charged throughout the whole of paradise. Light, the experience of light knowledge, changed and transformed him until Beatrice makes the poet ultimately drink, as you will see, from the river of light. And the beginning of our transfiguration, according to Dante, begins 
when we turn to love in order to love. At that moment, a deep spiritual change begins within us. Life from then on can only be a pilgrimage or a spiritual death should we lose the heavenly vision of beauty known in the Beloved. We have noted that the Lord's transfiguration prefigures in the Gospels the approaching reality of the crucifixion. From Mount Tabor onwards, our Lord began to teach his apostles that the Son of Man was to suffer death and rise from the dead. Furthermore, he taught that it was the vocation of all those who would follow him that they too had to take up their own cross. It was in the light of this that the early church understood that the transfiguration helped to make sense of the desolation, the utter desolation of Calvary. On Mount Tabor, it was given to St. Peter, St. James and St. John to behold the Lord's divinity, thus anticipating, as it were, his resurrection and ascension. They saw him truly as the Son of God, fulfilling the law and the prophets represented by um, Moses and Elijah who appeared with him. St. Peter is emphatic. We have not followed cunning devised fables when we made known unto, unto the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received from God the Father honour and glory when there came such a voice to him from his, the excellence glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard, and when we were with him on the holy mount. We also have a more sure word, word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto the light that shineth in a dark place, and to the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Those wonderful words come from the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 to 19. Thus, at the Transfiguration, our Lord was made known to the three apostles as the apocalyptic sol justitiae, the son, S-U-N, of righteousness, prophesied in Malachi, Chapter 4, verse 2. A mystery veiled by the kenosis, that is the emptying, self-emptying of the incarnation, now revealed in fullness of the glory on Mount Tabor. I have a little footnote there. It's a quotation for the Troparion, that is a hymn for the Nativity. Thy nativity, O Christ our God, has shone upon the world with the light of knowledge. For thereby they who adore the stars through a, through a star were taught to worship thee, the sun of righteousness, and to know thee, the day spring from on high. O Lord, glory to thee. And so for Dante, the cross of radiant light extends across the crimson blood-red of the heaven of Mars, the heaven of Christ's witnesses. The light of the transfiguration reflects and sparkles in and through the souls held within its radiant beauty. It is an extraordinary images. Again, the services of the Orthodox Church helped to illustrate Dante's vision of the cross. Words set for the feast, the Transfiguration, speak of our Lord as the builder of the vault of heaven, 
And I quote, The thrice-blessed tree on which Christ the King and Lord was stretched, which God planted upon earth. And the services go on to associate the exaltation of the cross, the glory, the Shekinah, the glory of Christ transfigured. The heaven of Mars is a revelation that reverses the values of the world and the bastion of reason is revealed for what it is. Dante knew the rich imagery of Richard of San Victor who contrasted Christ's seamless robe, the torn garment of earthly philosophy and Mount Tabor to true Gnosis. The transfiguration, as we have already hinted, enlightens the scandal of the cross. The three apostles, Peter, James and John, were left to puzzle out what they had beheld. Peter, through denial, repentance, leadership, leadership and crucifixion. James, through witness and martyrdom, and John through teaching and vision. It's not for nothing that within the space of a few cantos that these three saints were questioned Dante as to his understanding of faith, hope and love. And I've already pointed out to you that Dante named his first two sons and um, Peter and James, and if he'd had a third son, you can be sure he would have been called John. This, at long last, brings us to Cacciaguida, his great-great-grandfather. Dante speaks to the soul of his great-great-grandfather Cacciaguida, who was killed in the Second Crusade and therefore a martyr. His ancestor at first speaks with tongues, and the poet is unable to understand him. Gradually, he recognises that he's being addressed in the old Latin Tuscan dialect of his forefather's generation. This is very interesting. It shows you how the Italian language evolved from, the, from roughly St. Francis onwards into Dante's own time. There follows a long sequence in which Florence's decay is described with a detailed historical grasp of what may be described as the way of the world, that poison which gradually degenerates society over the generations. And we may sit back and ask, but what has all this to do with martyrdom? The answer lies in the nature of Christianity. Dante is emphatic. The cross is the providential force which binds the tragedies of history to their cosmic ap apocalyptic end. History is not an illusion, the samsara of the East, but the stuff out of which our own redemption was wrought and through which we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We too write our own history, the book that will be opened and eventually judged. And the commandment which falls on this heaven is, Thou shalt honour thy parents. Hence the seriousness with which the family is taken. Indeed, as Dante shows in the Commedia, strife often comes from warring families. The petty struggles of the Italian city-states display a clear record of every vice known to man and woman. Envy, malice and hatred broods within a city's walls. Such are the contagious spirits of old, the classical Mars, who through the operation of Lucifer would occupy heart, mind and body of every man. The family 
thou shalt honour thy parents. The family is either the soil in which the true tradition is matured, or it becomes the anger that rots at the hearts of both men and women. Women. Cachaguida dispassionately sums up the outward signs of social decay, of which I find there are about 13. They seem to be rather applicable to this day and age. Social decay is shown, according to Cachaguida, by bodily ornament. This leads to pretentiousness. For example, how we furnish and decorate our homes. In the ideal city, there are no empty properties, for all are engaged with work for good of others. Another sign, very applicable to today, is the breakdown between the life of the city and agricultural life. Another sign is that natural geography becomes confused and subverted. That is, the loss of identity through a confusion of races, cultures and manners. I don't think Dante would have been very much in favour of what we call the multicultural civilization of today. The falsification of the relationships between the individual and society by what we would call today the media. Another sign is transvestism. Cachaguida gives the example of how Cleopatra feminized Caesar. Another sign is when procreation becomes a form of commerce and when politics become a theatre of self-interest, when speech becomes empty and void of true meaning, a sort of social waffle, at which politicians are experts and also many of the media. When clothes become a vogue and the, mask, and the face becomes a mask, when the body politic on all levels, from commi committee meetings to government, um, becomes corrupt. When the church and holy things are prostituted. And finally, when life becomes a mere spectacle, a carnival. In such a society, Cachaguida insists, Violence will reign. There will be no discretion that any point of view will contribute to a lowest social common denominator. Meaning, true meaning, will be ridiculed. Names will become superficial. For example, in English, the loss of the true meaning of the second person singular. Coming from France and Italy and Switzerland, as I do, I find it sad that I can't say thou to my closest friends. It doesn't exist in English. And there's a great difference between thou and you, or vous, or voi, or si. And another sign is that beliefs are watered down and that there can be no renewal, according to Cachaguida, rather fraction and even civil war. But where does martyrdom, that is witness, come into all this? Well, attempt to practice the Beatitudes and we shall soon find ourselves in the arena it is in this light that Caccia Guida interprets Dante's exile. The poet must take up his cross and fearlessly set out on his own personal pilgrimage 
in order to find through grace meaning and purpose. It is his charge, says Cacciaguida, to write down his vision and insight for future generations to read. And then in Canto 15, line 88, Cacciaguida curiously refers to Dante as fronda mia in che io compiacemi, my frond in whom I am well pleased. Surely these words are intended to echo the words heard by St. Peter, St. James and St. John on that table at the Transfiguration. It is Dante's intention here to emphasize that the great mystery into which, into which we are baptized touches the very roots of our humanity. We are related to one another, of one body. We perceive the Holy Spirit's operation in others as they <coughs> grow and acquire grace. It is this, and not worldly success, which should gladden the hearts of parents as they watch their children and grandchildren mature. Furthermore, it is the life of grace. In the, the life of grace, we must learn to honour our parents. It is the life flow of true society. <coughs>